I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher, a movie buff, and I'm an evangelical. And man, I got no joke. We're we've been working all day. This is a this is a midday recording, so we'll you see have how work it goes. brain. I have That's work what we brain. said before recording. Yeah, well, you know what I brain. haven't forgotten? The name of the show. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Here's the music. <laughs> Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity, welcoming you to the show, whether you are a believer or not. Please be sure to check out VCW Pod for Patreon. If you want to support the show, uh, we would appreciate any help. And we are excited for this episode. I'm specifically thinking about the pilgrims fleeing a form of Christian nationalism. You can maybe put it that way, the Church of England and coming to America if Christian nationalism really took root here in America, where would we all flee to? I don't know. Um, but we are excited for the guest on this episode. He is a sociologist studying religion, culture, politics, and disability. He has previously authored the book Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States with Samuel L. Perry. Recently, he has released a podcast series called American Idols, which is a four-part podcast series on the Axis Mundi Media Network created by Brad Unishi. And he is the author of the new book out from Brazos Press, American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. We're going to talk to him about this book today and the podcast series. Dr. Andrew Whitehead is here. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much. Happy to be here with you all. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on. And before we get rolling, um, can you share your story in, with evangelical Christianity, your journey? It is uh, weaved throughout your book as you kind of talk about your upbringing and how the different parts of Christian nationalism was a part of that. But do you want to generally share your own story? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, like you said in the book, I bring some of that into it because in American Idolatry, you know, it's built off of the work that I've done as a sociologist on Christian nationalism, but tying that to the personal journey as well. So growing up in a white evangelical megachurch uh, in northern Indiana, um, and, you know, that was a place where I felt very accepted, right, and kind of instantly entwined into the life of the church, the the family atmosphere, um, and I was there, you know, Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning, no matter what um, I was there. And so, you know, those were really formative years for my faith. Um, but then, you know, as I left for college and, you know, then went to grad school and, and kind of continued that journey, you know, one of the things that started to stand out is that while that space was very welcoming for me, you know, I started to realize that not everyone had that same experience, right? That, and then wondering why it wasn't as welcoming to them. And so that kind of started this journey, too, of, of thinking through the values and beliefs that I was told and raised in and 
where and how those you know held true and where and how those might be set aside for for other goals um and so you know different books i'd read and then going to uh graduate school were all part of this journey as well of kind of disentangling and and thinking through the faith that i was handed um and then how it gets lived out in the public sphere right in american civic life and so yeah that journey continues and and i think this book is is kind of a a part of that journey telling a story up up into a certain point of kind of where i'm at and how i'm thinking about um, at least some of these issues as a social scientist, but then too, as a person of, of faith, you know, still today, albeit very different, um, in some ways to, to what it was, I guess, 20 years ago now. You, you write early on in the book that as you see it, the, the three pillars of Christian nationalism are power, fear, and violence. Mm-hmm. Notably doctrine is not. Uh, one of the pillars. How and why are these three things, power, fear, and violence, the pillars of Christian nationalism as you see it? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I love how you brought that out where doctrine isn't necessarily a part of it, right? So mm-hmm. when we're talking about Christian nationalism, um, it's a particular expression of Christianity that is being kind of referenced with the Christian of Christian nationalism. And while that includes historic doctrine, right, uh, as you kind of mentioned, Zach, of 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 the faith, um, it doesn't stop there. It brings with it all these other cultural assumptions along along for the ride, essentially. And so with this particular expression of Christianity, it isn't as though you only need to believe that, let's say, Jesus is the son of God and played an integral role in salvation and bringing you know, humans and, and God back on good terms and on from there. Um, but that you need to then embrace some other aspects. Um, and these, again, these cultural aspects have been added on over the years, centuries. Um, and so when we're looking at the Christian nationalism as it operates in the U.S., um, power and fear and violence are those central, as I call them, idols, um, where they essentially require allegiance from people that are going to to follow. And they'll provide protection. Um, in many ways, they'll you know, kind of meet the the needs of whoever is embracing them. Um, but they also require something. And I think in the book, trying to highlight how chasing after power, giving into fear, um, you know, being very comfortable with using violence um, in response to fear, because you fear that power is being taken away. Um, all of these things require American Christians to in many ways um, move away from um, various expressions of the Christian faith as Jesus himself might have, you know, said, or at least was recorded to say in the gospels and, and move people away from uh, what it might be to live those out. Um, I think in a more faithful manner. And again, that's where in the book, um, moving beyond the social scientific study of it and, and actually making kind of normative claims is I think, you know, this is, there are more faithful expressions of the Christian faith out there that people could embrace um, kind of confronting and opposing Christian nationalism, they don't have to embrace this form um, in order to stay Christian. There's other avenues and, and places to go. Yeah. Um, your book is, uh, going back to some of your early statements, just a a perfect marriage of talking about theology and sociology, and then your, your personal story weaved in. And that's what's uh, really, really great about it. 
Uh, Zach and I have been discussing how big the Christian nationalist movement actually is within evangelicalism. And it can be tricky. And this is where having a sociologist really helps here mm-hmm. because politics is often, you know, this spectrum. Like people are hardcore, there may be softer aspects. And then there are people who would say they don't like it and don't agree with it. But if it happened, they would probably go along with it to some extent. And you you also break down these categories uh, generally in your work. One of, one of the hardcore ones you talk about is ambassadors. There are ambassadors of Christian nationalism uh, who are the really hardcore ones who will openly say they're Christian nationalists. There are books out there saying, uh, arguing that there should be blasphemy laws, for instance, in the United States. Right. Um, how big are these different categories? Like, how, how would you characterize, you know, how big this movement is? Because I still think a lot of mainstream evangelicals would say this is just a fringe type of movement. Yeah, definitely. No, it's a, a great question. And, you know, in many ways, the size of the groups um, can differ depending on how we ask questions of respondents to our surveys. Right. And so for some, when we're really focused on and, and talking about privileging Christianity and Christians, you know, should should have the most access to political power, um, you'll see anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of the population um, are people that strongly embrace Christian nationalism. And so while it doesn't sound like a lot, what what matters is that it's a particular subset of the population. They tend to be older, tend to be white. Um, tend to be relatively well off. And and so when we look at the voting population, ambassadors actually make up a larger percentage. Um, and so in that sense, they're very motivated um, and can play a role and and have a um, pretty big influence on you know the political sphere as one example. Um, so ambassadors again are around 10 to 15 percent. And then the next group, as as you point out, um, you know, we label them accommodators. And again, we use these terms ambassadors and accommodators really descriptively, right? Because the way that we measure Christian nationalism is kind of on a scale. It isn't just an either or, like you're a Christian nationalist or you're not, but where you fall on this scale. So ambassadors tend to be um, anywhere from 20 to up to a third of the population. And these are folks that they might not be those that are like trying to submit legislation to put in God we trust in all the schools or something like that. But they're the group that's most likely to just not do anything when those bills are put forward, right? Because it would kind of seem like, well, if we're going to put anything in a school, it might as well be Christian or in God we trust. Um, And so in some sense, they, again, accommodate or kind of sympathize with some of the the work that happens that ambassadors are doing. And so that's a pretty large group. So together, um, around a third of Americans, uh, maybe a little bit more, are at least sympathetic um, to Christian nationalism. And so, again, when we look at the voting population, this can be influential. But also, too, as you kind of pointed out, um, it tends to be folks on the polar ends are most engaged in politics and tend to be kind of the loudest voices in the room. And so, um, here again, ambassadors really can you know, with the rhetoric they use and, and the, you know, what they do in the political sphere, be very influential. And then accommodators are kind of creating fertile ground for some of those can be more extreme views uh, to pop up and to take root. Um, and then we have resistors and rejectors. Um, and these tend to be anywhere from 20 
25% each of the population um, to, to even hire um, that either resist Christian nationalism or outright reject it. And in the book, you 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 say that over 75% of white uh, evangelicals, or let's see, yes, white evangelicals over 75% are at least yeah. sympathetic to it. So yeah. the overwhelming majority, I think when Dave and I were tossing around numbers talking with each other recently i said yeah i wouldn't be surprised it was 80 percent or so you know he he was converted as a teenager like i grew up going to a baptist school where i had to pledge allegiance to the american flag the christian flag and the bible right. with with uh coordinating hand motions that i could still recite and do very easily <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and so it was christian nationalism was just absolutely just baked into the fabric and and that school looking back doesn't strike me as probably an abnormal form of christian school the i'm i'm interested in and on in the second episode of the podcast you talk about the overlap between uh christian nationalism biblical literalism and conspiratorial thinking yeah uh to the point of people embracing conspiracies that don't even exist if offered the chance to embrace them. <laughs> yes. Can, 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 can you we'll talk about the, how yeah. these things intersect? Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating finding um, in, in a paper by, um, I think, Brooklyn, I forget her last name, and Abigail Vetker. Um, and I interview Abigail on the podcast. Um, and this is off a survey that I'd been working with in um too, where, where they use it. So I want to give them credit. But yeah, what they find is that Americans who embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to embrace um, a number of conspiracy theories. And and what the, the people who wrote the survey did was they included like five or six that everybody kind of would have heard of, right? So that you know, the moon landing or 9-11 um, or, you know, the JFK assassination, basically that the government is hiding information on these various things. So folks could agree with that. And then one question they input in there was, you know, is the government hiding information on the South Dakota crash? And the South Dakota crash has never happened. It's not an actual real conspiracy theory, um, but they included it to see if people that right, would choose one, would be more likely to choose one. Maybe they haven't heard of, but they're like, well, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and what they found was a people that embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to embrace um, the fact that the government's hiding information on all of these, including one that doesn't exist. And so what that highlights is there's an aspect of this cultural framework um, that is is populist in nature in the sense that it questions authority, right, and questions authority structures or um, people that are experts in different fields, whether it's, you know, elites, quote unquote, in government or business or religion or academia, right? That these folks are not giving us the whole story and we need to, you know, basically not listen to elites. Um, and, and then in this research, they found that um, in a similar way, Americans that embrace um, the idea that they the Bible should be read literally and that it's literally God's word to um, humans, um, in the same way, those folks are more likely to embrace conspiratorial thinking. But then when those overlap, which for a lot of folks that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, they tend to also identify as a person that you know, believes the Bible is the literal word of God. Um, it almost acts as a kind of like nitrous boost <laughs> to, the, to the street racing car, where it, it really pushes them to embrace this conspiratorial thinking. Um, and so again, this populist nature um, element of Christian nationalism, as I kind of talk about it in the book too, 
um, really lends itself to seeing um, the we, the quote unquote us, right? This group of Americans who are the true Americans that God, you know, designed this country for. Um, that we need to be not only fearful of those on the outside, but we're going to be persecuted. And in that sense, we need to always be looking for where, you know, these nefarious groups are coming from or what they're going to be doing. And so it just lends itself um, to embracing these. So again, as we look at COVID-19 and reactions there, right, all of that can play out as well. And that had real world implications. Um, it isn't just thinking the moon landing was faked. It's, you know, we are not going to abide by any governmental suggestions or, you know, rules about masking because COVID is not real, that type of thing, too. So it it really does have real world implications. I think, yeah, the the, the populism and how it how it blends in with these other things, I, I think hearing verses all the time, like, you know, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I think they're right. they're primed to think, you know, us versus them them being the world the ones that think that the message of the cross is crosses foolishness mm -hmm. they don't have access to the information that we have they think they're right about things but they they are fools themselves right. we have special information from god but then you you, you bring you you bring in the the syncretistic beliefs of QAnon and all these other things where you know we talked about how doctrine you know tra traditional biblically derived doctrine isn't necessarily a pillar but there are these adjacent beliefs, cultural frameworks that become a form of doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, in 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 talking about uh, what their vision is, what what they want to protect, uh, you, you write in the book that white Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates for a fusion of a particular expression of Christianity with American civic life. It holds that this version of Christianity should be the principal and undisputed cultural framework in the United States, and that the government should vigorously preserve that cultural framework. Just yesterday, Trump said in a speech that uh, yeah. if you don't like our religion, then we don't want you in our country. You know, I, I saw people on Twitter say, what religion? I, th I think, I think, uh, Dante Stewart said, what religion, like all caps. I saw other people say the religion he's talking about is Trumpism. I, with with Trump and in this particular instance, I'm often reminded of the, the film Night of the Hunter, uh, in which the villain played by Robert Mitchum presents himself as a pastor. But when he's asked what religion he professes, he says, the religion, the almighty and me worked out betwixt us. Yes. <laughs> Setting aside the issue of whether or not Trump is a Christian, I, I think this moment speaks to your point about Christian nationalism wanting a particular expression of Christianity mm -hmm. to be the principal and undisputed cultural framework for America. But it's so striking that the specifics of that particular expression can be so fuzzy and malleable. Mm -hmm. um, he does not define what our religion is, but he wants to use that to prevent people from coming in. How How is this malleability, this this fuzziness of what the particular expression is? uh weaponized i suppose maybe the word here yeah yeah i think you know christian nationalism in some ways it operates in different uh levels and and my colleague sam perry has a nice paper on this where he kind of argues that christian nationalism as a cultural framework can be embraced by you know kind of people in the pews right americans um and they could really believe that the us is a christian country or that we should advocate christian values all this stuff but it can also operate as a political tool 
And for those in power that whether or not they actually believe this to be true or want it, they recognize the power of the rhetoric, right? And using those words, it's going to motivate and create, you know, a voting block or a motivated voting block to support them. So I think Trump is is in that frame where, yeah, he was like the true test of the power of Christian nationalism and that rhetoric, because before it isn't as though Republican candidates especially didn't appeal to this country being blessed by God and, and Christian and all those same things. But they would always say themselves that they were Christian or that they abided by or tried to abide by those Christian principles. Trump did away with all the personal piety stuff, but he used yeah. the rhetoric, right, of giving power, right, and, and wanting this country to be Christian. And evangelical Christians, mainline Catholic, like those that embrace Christian nationalism, they fell in line because they hear that us and the we, and they know what that means, right? It has racialized undertones. Our religion. Political, yeah, political undertones. Um, it activates in such a way where um, you could say it's a dog whistle. Um, again, Sam, he kind of likens it to a, a mating call, right? They hear it. <laughs> they know exactly what that is, what it means, and and they are going to come to that call. And Trump, you know, if he's good at anything, he knows how to not only work a room, but to take the temperature of what is working, right? Which rhetoric is is landing. Mm -hmm. And his rallies really were just kind of like um, focus groups, right? I'm going to use some of these words and terms and say some stuff. And man, what gets people fired up? He's going to use that next time. And so over the years, I think he's really um, got a sense of, of what lands in this type of language and rhetoric. It lands. And um, yeah, the malleability, um, able to say a lot by just saying kind of these broad terms, all of that cultural framework is unspoken, but it's right there. Um, and the listeners, they hear that they know what it is. It's, you know, in some ways that gets similar to when they cleared Lafayette square and he held up a Bible in front of that church mm -hmm. that he didn't go in and it wasn't his Bible, Yeah, but it was upside watching, down. Yeah. It was upside down. <laughs> and they asked, is this your Bible? And he said, it's a Bible. Yeah. Um, so it was that same thing. The folks looking at that, they knew what that, what those symbolized, right? Um, and you didn't have to say it. And so I think in the same way, that's that's what we see happening here. Uh, it is so depressing that we still have to talk about this guy. <laughs> it really is. Um, I'm with you. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I've stated before on the show that um, I, I often will listen to Christian Nationalist podcasts. I'm sure you probably check out some of the same stuff that I do. I, I follow um, some of them on Twitter X see their and see their interactions. And I think a few times I've actually seen you, uh, mix it up with them, but, uh, it, yeah, it, it can be a really dark, dark rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it's trolling. A lot of it is, you know, they intend to be provocative. So you don't know how serious they actually are, but yeah. they probably are serious to be, to be honest. But I wanted to ask you some questions that I have seen from this very bad perspective out there just to see how you would mm. react to them, because there there might be more conservative Christians who are listening, either accommodators or, you know, in the in the other camp, accommodators or, or, or somebody in the other camp who um, I think to hear how to respond to some of these charges from Christian nationalists might be helpful for them to just untangle and disentangle themselves from this stuff. So one of the arguments that I've heard, you state that Christian nationalism is based on power, fear, and violence. We talked about that on this episode. But Andrew, 
somebody is going to rule us. It's a, it's a zero sum game. Uh, why would you want the secularist or the secular humanists to rule when we can have Christ's rule? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is one that I hear a lot of. And, you know, I, I think too, it kind of relates to, I love the title of your podcast, veterans of the culture wars, right? It kind of assumes that um, the cultural mentality is the only way to approach civic life, right? That it is a zero sum game. And I think we could question that assumption that that's all that we can align with. It has to be us or them, right? So if we're speaking and and maybe Dave, you're talking about speaking particularly to Christians, I think, you know, in talking to Christians and using that that framework um, of that faith. And again, there are many Americans that are not Christian and we need to listen to those voices and experiences and respond to those. Um, and I think, you know, for Christians kind of questioning this idea that it is a zero sum game and that it only comes down to us or them um, because in many ways, um, and I talk about this with uh, Andrew Seidel, he's uh, he works for Americans United for the separation of church and state He's an atheist, a constitutional lawyer. He writes about Christian nationalism. So he and I talk about how we might hold very different beliefs, like religious or you know secular beliefs, whatever. He and I are on different you know ends there, um, but we have particular values we hold the same, where we see the right of each other to not only exist but then to take part in our culture, our civic framework. Um, if we really do want to live in a in a pluralistic democratic society. Now, is that going to be difficult? Yes. And will it take a lot of conversation and compromise? Yes. But it doesn't mean that we can't hold beliefs that our own religious beliefs differently, but that we hold values the same. Again, the humanity of those who are different from us and the right that they have to also be at the table and to see it again, not as a zero sum game, but that we're sitting around a table together and there doesn't necessarily have to be a person or a group that's at the head of the table, dominating all discussion. Now, the power of Christian nationalism is that in the past, it was taken for granted. It was really the only voice that was larger. You know, it was just the largest voice. Everybody else was kind of marginalized and nobody had to question those assumptions. But we live now in a country that's more religiously and racially and ethnically diverse than ever before. And so if we want to hold on to a country where maybe one day Christians are going to be the minority and how would we then want to be treated? How would we then want to partake? Um, and so I think there we have to think through the implications of, oh, it's only a zero sum game. Oh, it's only one group in power. Um, and is there a way to move forward where we can listen to the voices of those different than us and find a way forward so that everyone has equal access to the benefits of being American. And, you know, we're all born here by historical accident. And there are a lot of, of good things about living in this country. And there's a lot of stuff that we could improve. And so how can we do that together? Um, so I think in some ways we have to question that assumption that it is only us or them in power. And uh, a political scientist friend of mine, Paul Jupe, he coined the term, um, this uh, inverse golden rule that treat others the way you uh, fear they're going to treat you. So in many ways, Christians tend to do, due to the, the groups that are other than them, how they think these groups are going to treat them. And in the past, that's been, you know, by marginalizing or silencing them. Um, and I think we have to find a different way forward if we're going to truly, I think, express better expressions of the Christian faith.
you have any more of those uh, Christian nationalist perspective questions, Dave? Oh, if you really want them, I have a few more. Yeah, um, soon. Yeah, you could do yeah. another. Okay. The next one is uh, the both sidesism. Uh, you state that Christian nationalism is based upon fear, but don't people who aren't Christian nationalists have a fear of a nationalist ideology having power in America? Aren't fear tactics used on on both sides? Yeah. No, I think fear is that's a uh, a reality of of the mechanisms of how groups and identities work, right? So it is very powerful. And yeah, you could watch different news channels and see similar levels of kind of fear being played out. Um, and so then I think the question becomes uh, empirically, what what sort of support do we have for for what we're afraid of, right? So when we see on, um, I'm just going to pull this out of thin air, but like on Fox News in the past, this uh, fear of uh, immigrant, um, you know, or Caravan. refugees. Yes, caravans <laughs> coming, or or particularly that they'll increase crime. Right, the immigrants in your community, your community is going to see an uptick in crime. Well, okay, so nobody wants more crime. Let's all just agree on that. Um, I get that. I don't want more crime in my community. So then the question becomes: Well, is that true? communities with more immigrants, does it see an increase in crime? Social scientists have been working on this and we can go and look at these experts. And what we find over and over in the US and even in other countries, um, whether we're looking at counties or metro areas, we find evidence that either there's no link, so there's no significant difference, no increase in crime, no decrease in crime, if there are more immigrants, or in there are some communities where more immigrants equals less crime. So we don't have any support empirically for the claim that immigrants cause more crime. So should we be afraid of that? I would be able to say no. So that type of fear mongering, I think, is detrimental. It doesn't align with empirical evidence. However, let's say we go to MSNBC and there's fear that if we elect Trump again, um, we're going to see you know, democracy continue to slide, to, to go away, right, or the guardrails of democracy to be attacked. So yes, that is is fear. Now, empirically, as we look at it, is this true? Well, on January 6th, we had people that supported Trump attack the Capitol, try to stop the certification of an election. And when we measure the American public, um, Trump, those that voted for Trump or especially embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to say that um, political violence is necessary sometimes to save the country if an election doesn't go the way you want. So now the fear, right, that's being talked about of, you know, we need to be careful electing Trump again because it could degrade democracy. We actually have empirical evidence for that. And so the both sides, um, does fear get used? Yes, that's something that happens in politics. I think then we have to move to, well, do we have, what's the evidence for that? And that's where we can start to discern, is this something we should truly be concerned about? Or is this something that's being used to just make me want to fall in line blindly and not actually embrace the evidence. And the last thing I'll say on it is that as a identify as a Christian, so I'm speaking just to other Christians, um, we also need to be thinking about these sources, whether it's on the right or the left that are telling us to fear, um, what is that doing to form us, right? And giving into fear, is that healthy for anybody? And so I think like looking at empirical evidence helps us step outside that and hopefully, you know, um, diffuse a lot of that fear. 
um, to where some things we just don't have to be afraid of. And then for other things, maybe we can get a good handle on the extent of, of the threat and get a realistic kind of gauge of the threat and then how to move forward. So I think fear for anyone, um, if it's constantly being pumped in, it can be, I, I think it has a harmful effect from, from whatever side, but I think we have to look at empirical evidence and that's really important to actually see if it's something we should be afraid of. Yeah, that fear uh, yeah. That, that that the reverse golden rule, the, the the fear that the currently marginalized people, if they get power, they will treat us the way we have treated them. Um, it it's interesting. It goes in a lot of directions. Uh, mm. in, in the book, you talk about sort of the the history of Christian marginalization, saying the marginalized status of Christians changed in the fourth century when the Roman emperor Emperor Constantine began to favor Christianity, then converted to the faith. Before a battle in which his forces were greatly outnumbered, Constantine reported seeing a vision of light in the sky. It told him, in this sign thou shalt conquer. The sign, which is a combination of a couple Greek letters that represented the first two letters of Christos, Constantine and his forces were victorious in the battle. The prevailing explanation for the victory was that the Christian God favored the Roman army, and this was likely the first adoption of Christian symbolism in service of military victory and might of raw power over enemies. The relationship between the Christian faith and empire would never be the same. So Christianity has enjoyed a privileged status in various cultures for 1600 years. But at the same right. time, there's this obsession with persecution. Right. Uh, studies show white Christians feel they are more discriminated against in this country than mm -hmm. anybody else, including black people. Right. So what function does this persecution myth serve and how is it perpetuated despite immense privilege? Yeah, well, I think in some ways it functions to to draw those sharp boundary lines around who we are and and to create kind of these high walls um, for to ke essentially keep folks in the fold, right? Like we need to be afraid you're going to be persecuted. You have to stick with us. And in some sense, you have to turn yourself over to what we believe um, is the right way forward. And so when we see these, um, you know, when there are political and religious leaders who kind of given as, you know, Dave was talking about to these different you know, claims of, and how you should be afraid and why you should be afraid, especially around persecution, um, then folks, when they're in that position, are, well, looking for answers. Who can lead us out? What should we do? And then, again, those leaders are there with, well, then do this or follow in this way. And so I think it functions politically um, to keep folks in and to keep them aligned and to keep them motivated. Um, and so the fear of per persecution is is key. Now, the the real trick and, and interesting part of this is that um, it isn't as though, you know, Christianity before, you know, Constantine was uh, in any way perfect or pristine or didn't marginalize folks, right? Like there's a, a long history there too up until that time. Um, but it was especially at that moment then where um, we see uh, Christianity again being aligned with power, um, but that feeling of persecution continuing to where it's kind of this odd juxtaposition of um, we're, we're both in power and that's good, um, but we're also persecuted by others and they don't want us in power at the same time. And so that tension, I think, keeps keeps folks kind of on their toes and moving forward um, again, against all empirical evidence. And I think one way that that really kind of harms um, the way that American Christians see the world is that they're actually less likely 
to recognize real persecution of people of their own faith in other countries, especially when they're coming to our country. Yeah. They're less likely to want to accept refugees who are fellow Christians if they're from a quote unquote, you know, the wrong country or racialized as non-white. Um, and so, yeah, that has a really pernicious kind of outgrowth from that long history um, of, of both feeling persecuted, but then also recognizing we're in power. Andrew, have you ever had a Christian nationalist tell you which version of Christianity should be in power? You know, I, I think we have something like <laughs> that's a great forty five thousand denominations. Yep. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, regardless of what people think of the pilgrims, and there are certainly lots of problematic elements with what was set up here. Yeah, I mean, they came to America escaping what is arguably a form of Christian nationalism with the Church of England. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, how would Christian nationalists decide which denomination would have power? You know, do we watch the Baptists and the Presbyterians duke yes. it out? Yes. And, you know, what happens? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually, Dave, going back to kind of where you started with, um, you know, questions or responses that uh, folks that embrace Christian nationalism might give to tri trip folks up or whatever. I think this is a key question that folks can have um, to then turn the discussion back to those that would say this should be a Christian nation um, to ask, well, what form of Christianity? Um, give us specifics. And you can see even with groups on online, Twitter, X, whatever we want to call it, um, that folks that would say, yes, this should be a Christian nation. They've written books. When you start drawing and pulling the thread on, well, then what, what form of Christianity are you talking about? You'll see them start to maybe not turn on each other, but they have distinct disagreements of, of what form of Christianity. So yeah, well, what do we think about baptism? What do we think about, um, you know, the eschaton, <laughs> the end times, they yeah. might interpret that differently or which version of the Bible should be used? Uh, what's the role of women? Uh, you know, all these different things. Um, and so when we're looking at actual expressions of Christianity, we'll find that then when it gets down to it, what type of Christianity should be privileged? Um, it is less about actual doctrine or historic Christian faith. Um, because again, like they recognize, just like we recognize, there's no way to enshrine Christianity because it is so diverse um, in any way in the civic sphere, um, you know, as one particular expression, because yeah, we look at just one religious tradition like Presbyterians and there are many different types and they differ a lot from Baptists and those folks differ a lot from Anabaptists. And so that I think should be part of the discussion. Um, there's so much diversity within the Christian tradition um, and that isn't necessarily bad. Um, but if we can understand and recognize that diversity, then can we also recognize the diversity around us for those Americans and our neighbors who are uh, secular or of a religious minority? And how can we work together, my hope, towards a common good, recognizing the right of all people to be a part of this discussion and and their com our common humanity in that sense. Yeah, I think it goes back to the pillars and like why doctrine isn't one of them. If it they couldn't agree on on yeah. on what that doctrine would be, there's a massive chasm between your your charismatic New Apostolic Reformation folks and your Reformed Rush Dooney Dominionists. Yeah, uh, you're right. But they all agree that we should be in power. That that this should be a Christian nation. That you know. Kath, we've talked to Catherine Stewart on her 
mm. on, on, on here in her book, The Power Worshippers, was, yeah, was so book. revelatory in understanding that that really is the through line of it all is the quest for power. Power, yeah. And and so that's why doctrine can't be a pillar because they could never agree enough to come together on that. But they can agree that it's okay to use violence. It is okay to use fear and and that what we want is power. Right. Um, I'm kind of wondering, so I we we actually um just talked to 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 Robert Jones, yeah, uh, recently, and the 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 final episode of your podcast, I think it was the final one, you talked to him a bit, and he mentioned the the Romney campaign, uh, the Romney Obama election of 2012. And I've thought about this in the past, but it just got me thinking again. And I'm wondering what your thoughts on this, because, yes, doctrine is not a pillar. Mormons can be part of of the Christian Nationalist Project, even though 90 percent of your new apostolic reformation folks are going to say that that is a cult. Um, And I'm, I'm wondering if if you think that there's a sense that or if you have a sense that that Romney being the Republican candidate for 2012 primed the pump for Trump in that way of like, we don't need, it doesn't matter as much if we're going to agree theologically, you know, it took us, it went a step further with Trump of like basic morality is irrelevant. Hmm. He's promising us power. But I remember in 2012 thinking, Oh, Romney doesn't have a chance because most of the GOP thinks he's in a cult. Like he's right. not one of them, but they'll still there's they still go out and vote for him. I'm I'm just wondering if 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 you see a connection between Romney as 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 not as as outside the typical understanding of of the Christian faith according to evangelicals, uh, and that leading up to Trump somehow. Yeah, no, I I definitely see that there's a through line there, and in many ways, you know, Trump um, and others have written about this, like Kristen Dumay in her book Jesus and John Wayne. Um, yeah. You know, he was the natural end result of, you know, these cultural moves that have been happening on the political and religious right for decades now. Um, because when we look at Reagan, that was that was another instance where he was divorced. And at that point, divorce was like a key pillar of the religious right that that is something we're fighting against. But they supported him, right? Turned on Jimmy Carter, who was a self-proclaimed evangelical and taught Sunday school and you know, all of those things, probably one of the more like really pious, you know, and good individuals ever to hold the office um, turned on him because Reagan would give them access to the type of power and cultural power that they wanted. And so in that sense, I think it's part of that history, you know, leading up to Romney even where um, it's about access to the levers of power that they want and desire to because of a particular vision for what this country should look like and this person gives us the best access or at least compared to obviously president obama um to have access to that and so we will ultimately fall in line and so you know in some ways this is natural part of a political system right like everybody's going to make compromises and and for them that was one that they do and it's not as though folks on on the other side of the political aisle don't also make compromises in who they they ultimately put forward for the the presidential um, election um but yeah I think it's a part of that history especially as we look at the role of religion um especially 
I think it's, yeah, it falls in line with um, setting aside really any sort of distinctiveness religiously, doctrinally, or whatever else um, for access to power. Let me uh, throw in a theological question here, because this is a, another one that I've heard Christian nationalists toss around hmm. online and also in various podcasts out there, um, especially ones affiliated with kind of a you know Doug Wilson type influencer network. And it is about the Great Commission. Hmm. And so, you know, for our non-religious list- listeners, uh, Matthew 28, Jesus gives the Great Commission. Therefore, we're going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um and Christian nationalists take this to mean that, you know, going into all the nations is doing missionary work, but then eventually working into, or at least some of them mean this, working into the political system of that country with the end result of making it a Christian country. Hmm. So in other words, I don't know how they plan to do this, going to Saudi Arabia <laughs> and trying to make Saudi Arabia a a Christian country, like trying to change the government. And it goes into, we're not going to go down this rabbit hole, but kind of a post-millennialism where there's reform folks who believe that once we kind of generally maybe get all these nations on earth as quote unquote Christian countries, Jesus will come back. It'll be the second coming. There's you know, been a little bit of shift in some evangelical camps from a pre-millennial, there's going to be a rapture mm-hmm. in seven years now to post-millennial um, theology where it's about believers ushering in the kingdom to some degree or not. How do you, you know, you identify as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do as well. I, I think um, living for Jesus or, or telling other people about Jesus is an important part of our lives. Of course, we want people to have a choice in the matter, right? We don't want them to be forced to. Um, how do you see the the Great Commission, and and can you respond to how Christian nationalists kind of treat the Great Commission? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that really kind of takes on as 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 you describe it, kind of that colonial kind of imperative, right? That we have to go and colonize, and and that has this kind of obsession with again, this form of power over other people, right? That we go in and in some ways, either they convert to our way of thinking or we enforce this on them um, because God has told us this is good and this is this is what we want. Again, this is their interpretation of certain passages in scripture or whatever else. Um, and so I think, yeah, when, when, when Christians, I think there are expressions of Christianity that we can either, you know, explore or move toward where the understanding of the Great Commission is is doesn't have to take on this lens of of colonialism where we're going in to take over and um to force or enforce anything. Um, but that it can be where where Christians are a part of uh how the society or or the civil sphere functions um in trying to, I think, you know, better expressions of Christianity. And again, that's a normative claim that isn't a social scientific claim, but better expressions are those that um, don't enforce uh, these beliefs on anybody, um, but try to, for that person that holds those beliefs, live them out faithfully um, and in, you know, um, community with others, whether they believe or not, um, to others' benefit, right? Leveraging what we have or the privileges that we have to serve others, um, whether that is something that they find appealing or not really isn't up to us. But so in that sense, I think the Great Commission is going and um, living among and within these different groups, um, seeking their good and flourishing. And, and through that, 
God's kingdom can um, expand. And that doesn't just mean bringing people, you know, the number of, you know, uh, salvation cards or baptisms, um, but that God's kingdom is about the flourishing of, of all people. So that's how I would think and understand about it. I'm interested in violence, in, in that mm. pillar of violence. Um, and I'm thinking about, I'll just, I'll just say it up front before I read the quote and get to the question, but I'm thinking about what's, what's going on in, with Israel and Palestine right now. Mm. Um, so you write in the book, several studies show that Americans who embrace the narrative of Christian nationalism are much more likely to assert American innocence regarding armed conflict across the globe. In other words, the violence enacted on behalf of the United States is deemed justifiable. These same Americans excuse violence enacted toward whole groups like the Native Americans and Africans stolen as part of the transatlantic slave trade. Indeed, many Christian Americans who embrace Christian nationalism believe that expanding the power and might of the United States is akin to spreading Christianity, the Great Commission, that wherever democracy goes, the gospel is likely to follow and be a net benefit to those cultures and places. This belief in national innocence encourages civil, uh, citizens to view all conflicts in terms of good versus evil. We begin to believe that a divine mandate allows us to use all tools at our disposal, including violence, to defend ourselves, the good, from those God does not support, the evil. I'm 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 wondering uh, if or how this mindset explains the the U.S. commitment to unconditional support of Israel, even when their uh, response to an attack causes far more deaths than the attack they're responding to. Or I saw a tweet from their government essentially mocking the Geneva Conventions. Mm. Um, Obviously, Israel's not America. We're talking about Christian nationalism, but I, you know, I, I don't even need to bet. It's obvious there is a correlation between support of Israel and adherence to Christian nationalist views. How do you see that intersecting? Yeah, we, we do find empirical evidence of that. So Americans that embrace Christian nationalism are more likely um, to, especially in like some of the, the rhetoric of let's say religious leaders or pastors of large churches that embrace Christian nationalism or that rhetoric. Um, we'll talk about supporting Israel, siding with Israel. And this is before this conflict. So I want to make right. that clear. Um, they could have changed their view or, or reevaluated in this sense, but before, you know, that, yeah, full commitment to Israel, because again, they have an interpretation of the end times that involves Israel, right? And we need to be on the side of Israel as a nation in their terms, we, uh, America, um, in order to be on God's side. Um, but then when we look at Americans' views towards um, Jewish Americans, um, they tend to fear them. So there's this kind of strange dichotomy of supporting the nation of Israel. But when we're talking about individual Jewish people, uh, Americans that embrace Christian nationalism, they see them as an other akin to uh, Muslims or atheists, right? That these are people you should fear. And so um, in that sense, I think Israel kind of exists in the mind of, or not in the mind, but within the the cultural framework of Christian nationalism, it exists as kind of a, a stand-in for being on the right side, God's side, you know, within history. But when we're talking about actual people, even Jewish people that, you know, could be at least a part of this nation of Israel, the diaspora, at least, um, they tend to, you know, want to keep them at arm's length. So that's talking about individual Jewish people. That's not even talking about Palestinians then. And so um, 
there really is this racialized undercurrent to it. And so looking at that conflict, um, I don't have any data on it. I don't know how Americans are responding to it who embrace Christian nationalism. Um, but I do know that there tends to be support for Israel unconditionally because of, of views of what the end times, um, the role that Israel plays in that. Um, but but a real, um, trying to find the right word here, a real fear of um, holding at arm's length of the actual people, right, that make up um, what could be this nation of Israel, let alone any of their enemies in the Middle East um, as they're kind of designated right now. So I think in that sense, Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism would see all of the people there, um, you know, as uh, holding them all at arm's length, being afraid of all of them, uh, no matter what. So there's a lot at play there for sure. Yeah, it's super complex. And, you know, I didn't let you know in advance that I'd be going in that direction, but just it in my mind, it's connected. So it is. I, yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we're uh, coming up on the end of our time here. So we thank you so much for being here, Dr. Andrew Whitehead. The book, again, for our audience is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church Out Now Through Brazos Press. Um, and you guys can, everybody can listen to the four-part podcast series, American Idols on Axis Mundi Media, to hear more on these topics. Uh, Dr. Whitehead, uh, where can people find you on social media, and do you have any projects coming in the future that you want to let people know about? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, so I am still on Twitter X, uh, whatever it's called for now. Um, and so they can find me on there. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. Um, and yeah, trying to kind of transition away from Twitter X because of some of what's been happening. And then too, I've <laughs> yeah. also started a, a Substack as part of that kind of exit strategy. So just Andrew Whitehead dot substack um and so the the newsletter is american idolatry it's what i've titled it after the book but yeah just exploring some of this stuff uh there as well so in those different venues um yeah folks can find me so yeah hopefully they uh find the the podcast helpful as well we'll make sure to link to that substack in the show notes cool thank uh, you thank thanks again for coming on really enjoyed the book and the podcast uh uh, really, really glad that uh, we were we were able to to talk to you about it. Just w wonderful stuff as usual. So yeah. look forward to whatever you have uh, coming up. Yeah, so. thanks so much. I really do appreciate the conversation and and what you guys are doing. Um, super important. So thank you for inviting me on. Well, Dave, uh, hello, hello. We have been marked safe from Christian nationalism yet again. Well, I. I... I mean, in our veterans hall, yes, in our society and perhaps with next year and election year coming remains to be seen. Absolutely. I was more thinking uh, from from our minds being colonized by it. OK, there we go. <laughs> I, I I personally am, am safe from the the influence of that ideology, I believe um, it's going to have a hard time. Uh, what 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 is um what does H.I. McDonough say in, in raising Arizona? Uh my 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 mind regarding Christ, Christian nationalism is is a rocky place where its seed could find no purchase. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Cohen Brothers dialogue. <laughs> I love that. Love that old old classic. Yeah, that's your Cohen Brothers um, update yeah. for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, important part of the show. Um, Absolutely. You know, along with everybody's favorite new segment, um, what does 
does does the Bible say that say that? Um, <laughs> which I'm I, I'm still working on. I I gotta I gotta write some notes. Uh, book okay. a book a guest to talk about it. Um, need to find somebody I know who's an expert on uh Dave Lester podcasts. Um, going totally meta on me. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, look look and out. not the social media site. See, uh, I thought you were gonna say, um, you know, it's time for the segment of what is Zach drinking as far as tiki drinks? Do you have a tiki drink that you were? This is my lunch break, man. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we don't have to. I guess, well, I was gonna say we don't have to tell anybody. I'll but tell you what, I've been drinking our, lately. We've got our live public work here because right? it's all it's all prepped. I've been having hot buttered rum. Uh, oh, there you go. Because you make you make a batter for it. That that butter is one of the main ingredients, and and it lasts as long as the butter would have lasted. So I got like a right. big glass container in the fridge with this mixture that is spoon a few of those plus some rum into a cup of hot water, and voila, you have it. So it's a lovely uh, fall evening beverage to to sip on, and yes. um, so Zach's manager, not during the day, not while he's at work. Yep. Definitely at night. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it goes. All right. Um, uh, well, wow. Time uh, for the outro? Yep. Take us to the outro. Okay. This has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. Be sure to leave a rating and a review wherever you like to get podcasts as that helps other people find the show. You can support the show. Become a Patreon member. We have... Uh, a Patreon episode releasing soon. It will already be up by the time this episode is out, so you can hear that episode if you become a Patreon member. Go to VCW Pod on X Twitter. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H, and our show is at VCW Pod. Go to Zach's website, Muzak.bandcamp.com and check out his music and a bunch of stuff that he's doing on there. And you can listen to my other podcast, Does the Bible Say That, wherever you like to get podcasts. And I, I hear Dave, I'm really hoping that he's working on a third podcast. Does, does, does the Bible say that, say that, say that, um, where he responds to the episodes of my podcast, Does, does the Bible say that, say that. Um, which is about his sure. podcast. Does the Bible say that we're, we're um, going to make this like the Marvel cinematic universe where there's going to be multiple multiverses everywhere. I don't, on, I don't understand that analogy. Never heard of it. Okay. Um, right. Thanks again for coming on down to VCW. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. And remember, as always, the podcast is free. The Patreon podcast is not. And either way, still got a tithe 10%.